0: Hi, I'm Gabby Herculano, and I'm
1: Shella Lika, and this is Climate Talk with Gabby and Shella, a weekly podcast in which we talk to an array of fascinating people from all corners of the business and financial world about their solutions for creating a decarbonized planet and a climate habitable for all.
0: Come join us as we push toward a greener future.
2: very excited today, we're talking to Maya Philipson, who is one of the um, co-founders of social justice company, Adesina, and it's a bit of a change for us, Maya, because we've been talking a lot about climate change from a lot of different angles, from technologies to counting carbon, but social justice is something that actually has a lot to do with climate change. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit more about your journey. You come from the investment advisory side. You co-founded an investment advisory firm over 15 years ago. And then at some point, you had this idea for social justice. So can you tell us more about that?
3: Absolutely. And thanks again, Gabby and Sheila, for having me on your podcast. As you said, I with my business partner, Rachel Burbush-T. I was a wealth manager for many, many years. Rachel and I had a wealth management firm and working directly with And clients was a wonderful background becoming an institutional money manager, which is what I do now, because I was really able to see how people, individual people, how much they care about the change that their money can make in the world. Now that's a long process for some people. Some of my clients walked through my door and immediately understood that their dollars could make a huge impact in the behavior of economic systems and publicly traded companies. And some of my clients after working with them for 10 or 15 years, we were still at the beginning level of getting them to understand where they spent, where they saved and where they invested could actually make a change. But overall. Being located in California and being located in San Francisco, I felt very lucky in that it was something that my clients cared a lot about. And one of the things that I began to see is that even though I would help my clients invest in social enterprises, in ESG funds, that they had a a limited amount of assets and it wasn't necessarily making the type of systems change that I began to feel called to. And so at the very end of 2020, my business partner and I actually closed. Uh, We merged our wealth management firm into a large California-based RIA, and we launched Adesino Social Capital because we wanted to make change as large as the economic system. And after years of working with individuals, we could see how hungry some people were for that. And we wanted to move real money and real dollars and affect publicly traded companies in the largest way possible.
1: And can you tell me more about when you talk about the journey and the fact that you were a wealth advisor previously, and you talked about the journey with 10 to 15 years, some clients still trying to figure out sort of their part in making that change. So it sounds like Adesina was a concept that came later, but that idea of making change and using investments as a way to spur that change sounds like something that you were already incorporating into your project? Where did it come from to begin with? I think for
3: many players and for myself, I would say it came from our desire to build a better world. And the tools that I had were economic tools. And so I think for some people, when they see a world that they don't agree with, they take to the streets and protest. And some people write letters and some people make amazing art. And I wish that I was an amazing artist that could make paintings that would change people's view of the world. But sorry, I have a background in economics. So when I look at a problem, I like to hit it with a big stick of money and see if that solves it. So I think that my clients and myself as climate change deepens, as sea levels rise, as uh, particularly in America, social unrest uh, continues and inequality grows we started looking around for ways that we could make change. And my answer was an economic answer. And so I started counseling my clients and starting my own journey of learning how we could use money to affect change. And of course, philanthropy is absolutely one of those ways. But there are other ways as well, some of them investing, some of them other types of economics. And that's what I became uh, very drawn to.
0: So can you take us back to that moment uh, a few years ago when you and Rachel decided, let's do this, let's start this company and share with us why the name, why ETFs and that theory of change? We get it, it it resonates with us. We have a similar background, right? That capital markets can be a source of good. How did you put it all together? I'm a bit curious on the name as well. So Adesina, uh, which is
3: A-B-A-S-I-N-A, is a it's actually a a proper name if you spell it quite slightly differently a-d-e-s-i-n-a it's a proper name in the yoruba language for a girl it means she who opens the way and we were (laughs) rachel my business partner and i looked high and low for a name that we felt really resonated with us and in the family history that rachel had done she believes That she can trace her ancestry back to Yoruba speaking people who were stolen from West Africa and forcibly brought to the States. And so it seems to us to be such a fitting and appropriate name for the work that we want to do here in America and also bringing some of her and many African Americans' deeply complicated history into the present in the forefront of what we did. And I would like to say that we did some sort of amazing focus group, but really we it kind of came to her that it, in just like a flash of insight. Uh, we had over 100 possible names. We were putting them all in a spreadsheet. Of course, we put them in a spreadsheet. And when she entered that one, both she and I immediately knew it was the right way. So that's a little bit about our name. And I'm so glad you asked because I, I really love talking about it. How we sort of came to our theory of change is a little bit of an interesting story. As I said, that we worked with a lot of individuals. And one of the things that we saw is that in individual portfolio construction, especially around high net wealth individuals, that the system is set up such that you, as an advisor, you... Are kind of counseled to reach out to your clients and do sort of a values based exercise and ask your clients, well, what's important to you? What's important to your uh, investments? Are you, do you care more about climate change than you care about animal rights? And the industry is very focused on creating portfolios for those high network individuals that allow them to kind of pick from a menu of options. And We tiptoed, I would say, down that path, but what kind of became immediately apparent to us is that when you do that, every single one of those individuals stands alone because you are approaching it from an intensely individualized perspective and it reduces or eliminates any type of community aspect because it's entirely focused on what that individual or what that family considers most important to them. And so it's very hard to build community, and then it's very hard to build any type of movements because you're individualizing all of the investment decisions. So we came up first with the idea that we would work with our client base, and we would ask our client base together to make investment decisions for a portfolio that we were putting together so that we did not create a portfolio that was individualized to each of our clients, that they our clients would actually come together and they would create a joint portfolio for all of them. And that was a lot of fun and a lot of work. We actually did that. We ran that portfolio for about two years. And then we noticed that there was only a certain amount of information that our clients, our, our community members at that point, were all people who were generally quite well educated. They all had access to wealth. A lot of them were self-made individuals. A lot of them were white identified. Quite a lot of them were women, actually. And so they brought a particular worldview. It was a relatively broad worldview, but it was still sort of particular to them. And there were certain issues that we weren't addressing particularly well in our joint portfolio because no one in our community had enough knowledge. And so we, Rachel and I decided that we need to look outside of our community for some of the answers to those questions. And we formed the theory that we now follow at Adesina, in which we believe that we are a bridge between social justice movements and financial markets. And so the way that we do our screening is that we reach out to social justice movements who are the people who are most impacted by the behavior of economic actors of publicly traded companies. And we source knowledge from those social justice partners and our social justice movements about what kind of screening that they would like to see in a portfolio. And so we still co-create our ETF. We just do so now at a much, much, much higher level with our social justice partners.
1: What a fantastic approach. And as Gabby said, definitely resonates with us, the, the the power of capital markets to influence and do good and for investors to have a voice that way. And can you help us and and the audience understand a bit better? So if you take, for example, one of the social justice movements and causes. I know there's been so many in the U.S., especially recently and such important ones, and perhaps give an idea and and, an example of the kind of companies or how you would go about choosing those that might represent that. So we
3: reached out to a social justice organization called the Poor People's Campaign, which was actually uh, started by Dr. Martin Luther King. It was one of the last things that he was doing before his assassination. And it was kind of taken up about 15 years ago. And it is fundamentally a faith-based organization. And one of the things that they do at the Poor People's Campaign is they do advocacy, engagement, and education around issues of those who are economically disadvantaged. And one of the very interesting things about that group is that it's a group that historically is completely not in the market at all. And so I, my business partner, we have a lot of background in sort of like trauma, French and Chicago school (laughs) economics. And so one of the things that we believe is that the markets, the financial markets are very good at taking in all available information. But we had the question, financial markets can't take in information about people who are not in the market. But people who are not in the market are still users of services and goods, and they're still interacting with market participants if you think about publicly traded companies as market participants. So we became super interested in what people who were not actually in the market, what information they might have that is actually a factor in the behavior of publicly traded companies. So we had a summit with the Poor People's Campaign. And one of the questions we asked them is, um, what would make these people market participants? We know, we believe that these people have important information to share with the markets. I believe in capital markets. What would they share and how can we get them to to share information? And the Poor People's Campaign said, well, these people can't participate in the markets because they're poor. And so the best way to get them in markets is to increase their standard of living. And the best way to do that is to increase wages. And the Poor People's Campaign pointed us towards an organization called One Fair Wage. Now, one of the very interesting things about America, for your listeners who are not here, is that we are a collection of federated states. And so we have federal laws and we have state laws. And one of the things that means is that we have a federal minimum wage, the minimum wage you're allowed to pay people, and then certain states have minimum wages that are higher than that federal amount. So depending on where you live, I live in California, which has a minimum wage of around $15 an hour. Someone would be paid more than if they lived in, let's say, Louisiana, which follows the federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour. Now, this is true except for workers federally who are classified as tipped worker, so workers who receive a large portion of their income from tips. Those workers can be paid at a federal minimum wage of $2.13 an hour, which means that if they do a shift and they receive no tip, they can take home a paycheck that shows $2.13, which made me want to leave the United States forever. Where do those tipped workers work? They generally work in restaurant and bar environments. They're generally women. Many of them are women of color. And one of the ways that they receive tips is by being, let's say, jovial to their clientele. Being helpful and nice and sweet. Maybe wearing a, a shirt that's a little tighter than they might be comfortable with on a day that they're not feeling it. But they know that it'll bring in a lot of tips. And that in and of itself has a huge power inequality huge racial implications that we do not have time to get into today. But the Poor People's Campaign connected us with an organization called One Fair Wage. One Fair Wage is an or organization that grew out of doing union and organizing work in the restaurant industry. And One Fair Wage is advocating for the federal minimum wage to be raised and the abolition of the tipped minimum wage of 2 13 And so... Once we talked to One Fair Wage, we made an investor coalition to make a investment case that actually paying workers at this low rate was bad for company and bad for company profit. So at Adesina, we did kind of two separate things. The first thing is that we screened out publicly traded companies. Most of we were in the food and beverage and hospitality sections who paid legally, but paid their workers a federal minimum wage of two thirteen an hour to show those companies that this was an unacceptable practice. We also started an investor campaign that highlighted that companies that actually paid their workers more and remember we have a federation of states, and some of those companies would pay their workers more in California and less in Louisiana that their restaurants in States that had higher wages were more successful and actually more profitable, which by the way is actually true. There's a a famous article about the CEO of Denny on an earnings call where he said that the companies, the Denny's restaurants in California had lower turnover, higher employee satisfaction, were better run. And overall, those restaurants were more stable. In California, than there's another state. So there's actually an an investor case for
0: paying your workers more. Maya, you're giving so much um, insights and food for thought. Thank you for walking us through that. It, it does make us think. And Chad and I are in Europe, right? We're 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 you're in California in Europe. There's ESG has been such an area of of interest to all sorts of investors, from very large institutional ones to retail ones. When I hear you talking about that, I I think about European investors that would love that approach. How do you see the ESG unfolding in the States? Do you see Adesina as a big part of this ESG broadening? Share us your thoughts from California.
3: You know, ESG in the United States has a pretty long history. Actually, we started doing what we now call ESG or SRI investing in the early 90s, but it was very, very climate focused. And it started with what we call inclusionary screen. So it was specifically looking to invest in quote unquote good companies or social enterprises. Uh, The problem with that is when you do that, you end up with very small portfolios. So, in probably the early Early to mid-2000s, companies started moving a little bit away from climate and started looking at all different factors, and they started using exclusionary screens. Then we had a market crash in 2008. And after that, in the 2009-2010, rebound, a lot of that rebound was in oil and gas. And so these companies who had put together the ESG SRI funds um, really, really lagged. And nothing gets a portfolio manager fired faster than years of terrible returns. And so people who created ESG SRI funds started using what we call like a best in class or scored system in which they looked at all companies across all industries and tried to find the best in every industry and The reason I'm telling you that kind of long historical story is that Adesina was born a little bit out of rejecting that scored system because we're not interested in investing in any oil and gas, despite the fact that, for instance, BP might get a higher score than Exxon. We don't believe that that still makes either of those companies in any way socially responsible. It is true that Exxon is the company in the world that spends the most on green energy research. God knows where they're putting it, but uh, they've got it locked up in a vault somewhere, I'm sure. Um, But that doesn't make them a socially responsible company. And so one of the things that we do at Adacena is we use exclusionary screening. But exclusionary screening, as we've seen, is not, it's wonderful, but it's not always enough. It does move markets, but you need a lot of money. And so where we start and where we really shine Um, is that we do a lot of investor organizing and we do a lot of work in investor coalitions because we believe we are stronger together. We're built on community. And so what we hope at Adesina is not necessarily that we change. I would love to say that the work that I I do and the work that we do at Adesina will change the financial markets forever. Um, I don't know if my company can do that, but I do believe that we can do it together And that I want to play a key part in creating investor coalition that can come together with all of their dollars and show the economic world a better version of
1: justice. The work you're doing is so important and you see us nodding our heads along because we believe very much in the same approach of exclusion and not just allowing companies to say they're green or whatever, do business as usual and not really change. Um, anything. And it, it sounds like from what you're saying, an important part, therefore, is that piece, as you said, the investor coalition. And so I guess just a question about that. So how would you describe or perhaps not describe your typical investor, but, you know, how does that piece of it work? And do you have the full gamut of investors that are very active and interested in that piece? Do you also have those that perhaps are are content To provide their money and know that it's going towards their part of the system change, and so how do you sort of balance that that spectrum of desire to be engaged and and how do you go about it? Because I find that really fascinating and very important and such a key part of therefore your theory of change. Thank you, Sheila. We're still working that
3: out. I'm going to tell you the truth. You know, we are uh, our firm is about a year old. Uh, Next Wednesday, December eighth, will be the One year anniversary of the launch of our ETF. We're extraordinarily proud. So, we are still working that out. And one of the things that we're working out is how to really communicate some of the amazing work that we do and who we need to communicate it to. We have a website, we have a social media presence, and that works for a lot of our investors. What I would call, you know, a retail investor, an individual who's simply buying shares of our ETF and they will read about us in the New York Times or they will see uh, us mentioned on Twitter, and they'll read a little bit about us and, and see how interesting we are, and that's enough information for them. Then we have some, maybe some institutions or a foundation that is, is more versed because of the collective knowledge that an organization has, the, the more than the sum of its parts, um, about making systems change. And they might be more interested in our theory of change. They might int- actually be interested in becoming one of our coalition partners as well as to become investors and to learn more about us by perhaps joining one of our coalition, joining the racial justice investing coalition, signing a pledge put together by our uh, one of our social justice partners, such as One Fair Wage, that they will hold certain standards within their organization. Um, Then we have maybe the corporate actors who are our our largest people that we are interacting with, who are usually corporate social responsibility departments or shareholder engagement departments. And they're mostly bemused by what we're doing. I do have to have a small shout out to ICCR, which is the Interface Center for Corporate uh, Responsibility, which is a U.S.-based, faith-based organization. And they do a lot of shareholder engagement. We are members of ICCR, which is open to all organizations, not just fake based organizations. And they take and request a lot of meeting with corporate governance structure. And they send very short, very old, very scary, none to those meetings and they get whatever they want mostly. And I bow down to the tiny, tiny
2: nuns. You think about this in a very different way. It it is so beautiful. And if you take this forward from where we are a month away from 2022 and you look at 2030, where do you think you will take this? Where do you hope you will be? And where do you realistically think you will, you will get in like a bit of a push pull, Mm -hmm. share with us your kind of hopes and dreams. If I look out to to 2030,
3: I see us being a thriving institutional asset manager. We have multiple strategies that we are looking at launching in 2022. And of course, we have our flagship product, our Adesina All-Cap Global uh, ETF, whose ticker is JSTC, the one whose anniversary is next week. And I think that's, it's a wonderful product because it's an all cap global screened product and there there aren't that many of those. And so we've just had a lot of uptake and a lot of traction with that, but we have other strategies kind of waiting in the way. So as we get larger, I can't wait to bring those strategies to market. The other thing that happens when I look into the future is relating to my theory of change is that I hope that there is more uh, differentiation in the market. And so we have taken some of what I consider the bad actors in a corporate space, and we have concentrated them, perhaps put some of them out of business. But it has become clearer and clearer that corporations need to act in responsible ways and that corporations really are accountable to their shareholders. My business partner, Rachel, likes to say something corny that she says, we're trying to put the public back in public company. But we truly believe that corporations have lost sight of the fact that they are public companies. They're raising money via the market from the public, and thus they, are, they need to be responsible to the public. And the public needs to tell them that their behavior is unacceptable because they are huge. Uh, they're huge actors in our public spaces because of capitalism, and they need to be doing better. And so I hope that I am part of the realization that
1: corporations
3: can do better
1: and need to do better. Well, we have no doubt that you will be. And absolutely, it seems like one of the most important parts of your work is the raising awareness of issues with certain corporations or standards that perhaps people didn't know. I, for one, did not know at all about the untipped or tipped wage level um, which seems shockingly low so oh, america
3: we... we have dystopia
1: sometimes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um but we wish you every success and we'll be cheering you next uh, week on the 8th for your first anniversary for the first birthday thank of you. your first fund and you. just want to say thank you so much for being here and sharing your journey with us we think it's fascinating and hope to have you back soon thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it thank you ladies Thanks for listening. Climate Talk is produced by Spark Network. You can listen to Climate Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your shows. To find out more about us, visit us at iclima.earth. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.